Bible, as the Lord would have it, we're going to speak on the Lord's table today, uh, to some degree, since it's part of our passage here, and uh, so that kind of fits well together. We are uh, coming to the end of a section where Paul is dealing with uh, our attitude and our willingness to sacrifice for one another, the service of the Lord. We uh, saw in the first few ch- verses of chapter 10, the general history of Israel is referred to as types of those in the new covenant, uh, types of the church, the things that Israel went through while in the wilderness. I think we can take that to mean the general history, history of Israel. We see in what's going on with them a type of a spiritual entity that is the church fulfilled in us spiritually. This helps us, for instance, understand why water baptism is not the continuation of circumcision. Instead, regeneration is the antitype of circumcision because circumcision is cutting off of something right. And so we know that uh, it's cutting off of the flesh does not help us before the Lord. It is a cutting off of the heart. It is a regeneration given us a new heart that brings one into the new covenant. So just as circumcision brought one into the old covenant, it has no place for today. Because the new covenant is spiritual. It is those who are in Christ. So the covenant theologians teach physical right, physical, rather than understanding their spiritual fulfillment. And uh, so that's why they would, for instance, uh, baptize babies uh, instead of waiting for there to be what we call credo-baptism. There must be a profession of faith before we would baptize anybody because it is to represent something that has happened spiritually. And that's kind of part of the message today uh, when it comes to not only baptism but the other ordinance, the Lord's table. The problem that the Corinthians are suffering from is thinking that doing something in the flesh as spiritual, it, it does something to them spiritually. And of course that becomes a big problem. So uh, nothing happens when you make someone wet. It is to illustrate something that has happened to you from within. Um, idolatry. We also, of course, the, the whole section, this whole chapter really is about idolatry because at the end of the day when we are unwilling to suffer or to control ourselves for one another, uh, acquiesce to each other, to maybe to others' weaknesses, it is because we have put ourselves first. It's the, it always goes back to idolatry. Idolatry puts self on the throne in such a God, us, only accept sacrifices that please self, right? The result, this results in immorality, testing the providence of God, dissatisfied with God's will, and grumbling, and being discontent, all the things that we talked about last week. Then we finished with uh, verse 13, talking about how no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That God will provide the way of escape and so forth. We saw that trials and temptations are sent by the Lord for our building up in the faith and not as an excuse to sin. So let me just, uh, I didn't really get a chance to say everything I wanted to about the idea of trial and temptation. Suppose I am walking down the street and a man approaches me with a gun and demands that I hand over my money. If I give it to him, I have not fallen prey to temptation. 
I have been forced to give him my money. But if a con man comes to me and works on me to, to give me, to, so that I give him freely my money, he promises me that if I will do something uh, or believe something, that uh, something good will happen to me, he's conned me in some way, he suddenly uses deception to cause me to want to give me my money. And that is different. I haven't been forced to give him my money. I have been duped. The con man appeals to my fleshly lust. Usually my sinful uh, lust is greed in that case, right? I think that if I give him my money, I will get even more money or I will get something that is too good to be true. And so I gladly hand it over to him I almost, we could say, I, I almost force him to take my money. Well, there's times when Satan is like the armed robber. That's what we call persecution. Where he tries to force you to give honor to something other than the Lord. Whether it be persecution or uh, in, in the trials of life, like with Job or something like that. But more often than not with us, he's the con artist. We can't say the devil made me do it. The devil tempted me. Uh, we can't say the devil made me do it. But we can say the devil tempted me to do it. Right? He fed me a lie that I took look, look, uh, hook, line, and sinker. He uses the natural self-love in my heart to follow his lead. Just like Adam and Eve where deceived Eve. He told her a lie and she bit into it and Adam seeing she had fallen decides I think I'll stay with her rather than obeying the Lord. He chose her over the Lord. And so that's what temptation is. And the way out Paul says is to believe the Bible and not the lies of Satan and therefore to act accordingly. In other words it doesn't matter how whether you believe the Bible is true. If you don't live like it, you know that in, in a, we call them you are a practical atheist. You, you give lip service to God, but somehow you don't really feel like what he says is true because you don't live like that. We realize that, the, that, that Satan's con is not going to increase our money. It's not going to increase our situation. It's only going to ruin it. Remember in chapter 10 that the application of, of this is self-denial, self-control, uh, of giving up one's freedom for the sake of Christ and for the good of your Christian brothers and sisters. I will not listen to what my heart or what this world and what Satan says. I will not buy into that. And as we see here, it takes a strong faith and a love for Christ to not listen to the world and the flesh and the devil, and instead to commit ourselves to Christ, to the church, to give up now what cannot last for that which will endure forever. That, that, that's the only thing that makes any real sense, and yet we find ourselves so drawn and uh, duped by this world to give ourselves to things that dishonor the Lord and will result in no reward at all to dishonor the one we say we love. And so Paul mentions the way of escape. We saw that last week in the definite article. He, there is A, B. There is only one way of escape mentioned as an encouragement so that we are assured that we do not have to fail. 
when it comes to trial and temptation. This is not pointed out as an incentive to live carelessly. It's not saying that, well, look, no matter how you live, at the end of the day, the Lord's going to get you out of it. He's going to take care of you. Obviously, that's not what the Bible teaches. It's an encouragement to those who fear that enduring the trials and temptations of life is impossible. To think It is for us who think that we can't do any better, that we can't possibly have the strength to be faithful to the Lord. No, the Lord lives within us. He has empowered us. He does not promise to get us out of trouble always. He does not promise to deliver us out of tribulation and pain, especially when we carelessly wander into it. So many times people misuse this promise as an excuse to toy with temptation to think that, well, again, the Lord's going to get me out of this, so at the end of the day, I'm a Christian, I can't lose my salvation, whatever we do to presume upon the Lord. And we continue to pursue a course of action we know will not lead to any good. It's wrong to this false confidence in God. But that is, again, to live in a way that puts God to the test. It's like walking out in front of a moving vehicle thinking that God uh, will take care of you. No, God has already set up the laws of gravity and motion and physics. And if you run out from a moving car, you are going to suffer for that. Again, don't try to use a false sense of presumption. But neither is the way of escape a promise that God will remove us from the trial. So the question is, well, what then do we escape? Well, he he says right there that you will escape, verse 13, that you may not, that you will be able to endure it. That's the escape. Is the escape is not well. I'm I'm suffering, so the Lord's got to get me out of my suffering. I'm being tempted, so the Lord's got to remove the temptation. No, because even if He did, another one's going to follow, right? Because life is trial, life is temptation. The escape is not to fall prey to it, but to be faithful to the Lord in it. Some think that Paul is promising that we will escape these things. But as we saw in James 1, testing is part of the Christian life. So this is not the case, as many, I think many biblical texts make clear. Israel did not escape the hardship of the wilderness. We're told that, that the Lord walked into the wilderness in order to test them. So it wasn't that they were out of God's will, it is just what the life is all about. What God promises every Christian is a way of escape from sin. Because sin was the rule rather than the exception with the Israelites. Again, that's the context here of the Israelites in the wilderness. They kept succumbing to temptation and trial. They did not react well in any situation. And Paul is saying, look, don't be like those Israelites. And of course, there's no reason for us to be like the Israelites. We have the Holy Spirit. And uh, so it says, don't be like them. But when these things come, understand why they're coming. Understand what's going on so that you can be faithful in them. Their persistent failure should serve as a warning to those of us who are overconfident, and all of us can be overconfident, but it's not intended to cause us to throw up our hands and just give up as if it's all inevitable. With every test, with every temptation, God provides the way to escape. Often without escaping the pain and the hardship of the situation. 
Because again, that's not the enemy. We've said it before. The, your enemy is not poverty, is not pain, is not whatever you're experiencing in the flesh. Your enemy is sin. It is not using those things for the glory of God. <clears throat> and so I think this is Paul's meaning because he concludes by saying that you will be able to endure it. That's the point, enduring. God provides a means to escape sin while enduring the test. You know, it's at this time of year that sometimes we sing uh, the song Escaping Tribulation, but we know the reference, I think, back in the day, pilgrims, of course, were trying to escape tribulation, and so they came to the new world to escape, uh, you know, being able to worship freely. Is there anything wrong with that? Uh, but they, of course, we know that in one sense, all they did was go from the frying pan into the fire because they, you know, half of them died that first winter. Uh, you read about the experience of the, of the pilgrims first few years, it was anything but pleasant. Um, you know, it, it was, in one sense, they were able now to worship freely, but they still were going to suffer because there is no escaping tribulation because we live in a world full of tribulation. Jesus said we would suffer tribulation, right? But Paul says we can escape and we have no reason to fall into sin. All Christians will come out of, the, of tribulation. We saw in a revelation there where uh, the, the, the Christian, the church of the, the bride, come out of tribulation, great tribulation. That is the call of the church. All right, so that kind of brings us to verse 14, which is kind of a transitionary um, verse here. Therefore, my beloved, belief from idolatry, we've seen all the sin and the problems of idolatry, but we find in this chapter there's really three sections all have to do with idolatry. What we're going to look at today has to do with idolatry. Um, he says here that we are to flee youthful lust, flee idolatry. Um, we are to flee from anything that would take the place of God in our hearts. It's really not hard to see why the first uh, commandments were against idolatry. Because it's impossible to keep any of the other commandments of God if we don't honor Him as God first in our hearts. Everything else becomes useless, uh, a sin. You, you can be faithful to your wife your whole life, and it's nothing but sin because you're not doing it for God's sake, you're doing it for somebody else's sake. It doesn't matter. If you don't do it for the Lord's sake, it's sin. A.W. Tozer said, A God begotten in the shadows of a fallen heart will, quite naturally, be no true likeness to the true God, right? Any God that we come up with, a man comes up with, cannot be like the true God. And so last week we saw what happens when we try to press God into what we want Him to be. He has saved us so we might give, uh, give Him the worship. He has saved us so that we would give Him the worship that is due His name, and of course, idols do the exact opposite thing. Everyone worships something. Even the atheist is a religious. We are all religious because we all were born with a need to worship God. We all have that remaining in us. Even the atheist who denies it worships something. There's something that fills his heart. Something that he lives for, even if it's himself. I think Job sums up idolatry pretty well where he says, if I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, 
If I have rejoiced because my wealth has been abundant or because my hand has found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone and the moon moving in the splendor which were types of idolatry that day, and if my heart had been secretly enticed and my mouth had kissed my hand, which was a way of, of worshiping a false god, perhaps by blowing a kiss, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. That's what you saw that it is possible to believe yourself to be quite spiritual, though, and be yet an idolater and a complainer against God. That, again, so this is all, there's a full of thought here. Israel thought themselves to be uh, loved of God and blessed of God, even while they committed idolatry in their hearts, right? And, and, and Paul is saying, don't be like that. So in verse 15, he says that what he is saying should be apparent to those who are regenerated. And I think perhaps he's not even referring to the regenerate. He's just saying, look, this should be obvious to anybody. Verse 15, I speak as to sensible people. It doesn't say spiritual people. He could have. But he's, he's, it's to me interesting that he says sensible people. In other words, you should just have enough sense uh, to understand, to judge for yourself what I'm saying here. And then he kind of goes off into this idea that some were evidently going to the uh, places where idols were being worshipped, but they were also serving food and drink. And so people were going, perhaps under pressure of friends or whatever, to go get something to eat. But And, and they weren't worshipping the false gods. They knew those gods weren't gods, but they were going and participating in the worship. And Paul says, Wait just a minute. You should have enough sense to realize something is wrong here. I wonder if sometimes we act like we shouldn't have to think things through. Because it, it, apparently they weren't. They weren't, they weren't thinking through biblical principles, what had happened to them, and how this needs to be worked out in my life. We just think the Spirit is just going to funnel knowledge into us. Whether we understand something or not. You know, I've had people say, well, the Lord hasn't shown me that yet. Well, sometimes that's a legitimate thing. The Lord doesn't show everybody everything the same way. But often, I, when I, I've heard this where they they don't want to know the truth. They're, what they're doing, what you know, what they were taught that as a kid or whatever they found this. This is what I like. I'm not, it, what they're saying is I'm not interested in what the Bible might actually be saying. And so their excuse is, well, the Lord hasn't shown me this yet. And yet I think in many cases, it's just like what Paul says here. It's not that we don't know what the Bible says, it's that we don't care what the Bible says. And I, and I say we, I'm hoping I'm speaking to the choir here, but this is attitude that we see in others that we don't want to see in ourselves. Maybe it, but it often, uh, I think the more accurate thing is that we have refused to yield to truth, much less to actually consider what the Bible says and simply believe it. We all know what Paul, what Paul would say if these Corinthians said, well, look, Paul, I hear what you're saying, but the Lord hasn't shown me this yet. And Paul wouldn't have been, I don't think, very much, very good things to say to them. Because it's obvious sometimes people really, it's not that they don't understand what the Bible says, they Particularly disturbing when people are in the church like that. 
problem is not knowing what he says, it's embracing it as truth and obeying very often. And so in verse 16, he says, now, this should be obvious, the cup of blessing that we bless, and here's referring to the Lord's table, the observance of it, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Oh, excuse me, I think I skipped it. Is it not participation in the blood of Christ and the bread that we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And it's suggested that what's going on here is that some were over-realizing the Lord's table. They assumed that eating it infused some sort of power or some sort of grace in them just by going through the actions and it made them holy in some way, and then they could turn right around and they could participate in the pagan feast and not be affected, which which is, in one sense, uh, incongruent anyway, because you're saying that you can eat of Christ and be affected in some way, but you can eat then of the participate with the demon feast and not be uh, affected. And in a sense, it'd be just like what we saw old Israel doing in the first 14 verses. It immunized them against sin. They had been baptized into Moses. They were followers of Moses. They had been delivered from Egypt. They had been given manna. They had been given the law. They had been given this covenant. So they were good to go. It didn't really matter what was going on in their life. um, So there's... The idea then of over-realizing something in the communion, the Lord's table, is to think that it's doing more than it's actually doing. The Lord said that the Lord's table is a commemoration. It is do this in remembrance of me. Oh, we've forgotten Christ? No. To remember what Christ has done for you. To remember what you are in Christ. And to let that permeate into your thinking, into who you are, to be reminded of those things. I've listened to Michael Horton, who's a Presbyterian for years, and anytime he refers to saints in a church service being edified, he always says word and sacrament. It's the church's job to do word, to feed God's people in word and sacrament. And of course he's referring to the Lord's table. Well, I understand how it's the pastor's job, for instance, to feed you the Word of God. And that as I do that, hopefully the Holy Spirit is taking that and nourishing you spiritually. You are, you are receiving it into your minds and into your hearts. But he lists those two things as equal, equally edifying. Word and sacrament. Word and sacrament. And yet, are we to assume that observing the Lord's table edifies God's people in the same sense that the preaching of God's word does? And I have a huge problem with that. It doesn't mean that there's not benefits from it. But what he's saying is that when you participate, eat it and drink it, the Lord is infusing grace into you in some way. The Lord is building you up. They call it a means of grace. Remember when I was 20, and my college roommate was going into Presbyterianism, and that was one of the things he said, it was a means of grace. I said, what do you mean a means of grace? Anytime we obey the Lord, the Lord is blessing us. 
blessings, and the Lord blesses us when we do that. Well, I said, the, the Lord blesses us every time we obey Him. What does that even mean? And he had no answer, because I've yet in my uh, 40 years or so since then to hear anybody really explain how the Lord builds us up spiritually by doing by eating or drinking something. This has become a problem early on as we want to take religious observances and in particular the ordinances of baptism and communion and give them, we might say, magical abilities or spiritual abilities as it, or say, a means of grace. In other words, if they do something to us, that the Spirit works something in us by an outward light, by being, getting wet, or by eating something, it's infusing some sort of grace or blessing of the Lord upon us. And of course, one of the big problems with that is that anybody can walk in and do it. Do they get blessed? Of course, we know the answer must be no. So what we find here is that the Lord's table is not about the mouth and what goes into it, but about the heart and what comes out of it. It is what do we do when we feast upon the truths that we just heard in the message that uh, about what we are doing. We, we've heard about Christ. We've heard about the cross. We've heard about sanctification. And when we take the Lord's table, we are being we, we're, it's an opportunity for us to feast upon these truths and to be thankful to the Lord and to ask the Lord to help us. And so let's try to connect all this to the first 14 verses. Many Israelites assumed that since they were Israelites and passed through the sea and ate the man and followed the cloud and ate from the water of the rock, that they were fine, they were God's people, that everything was okay, and no matter how much complaining and grumbling they did, the Lord is still going to have to take care of them. And you say, well, I think you're at the stretch there. They were doing it in Jeremiah's day. That was the whole problem. They they rejected Jeremiah when Jeremiah said, look, these armies are going to come and they're going to, they're going to destroy the city, your house, the temple, and carry you off. And they said, no, 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 no. We're God's people. We have... God's house here. We have God's house here. There's no way God's going to let them take that and destroy it. Because God's not interested in those things. He's interested in their hearts. That's all he cares about is our hearts. We worship and love him. And the Corinthians are doing the same thing. I'm baptized. I took communion today. Let me go to the next screen here. Talking about some over-realizing the Lord's table, they assume it does more to them than intended. But what we find here is that the Lord's table is not about the mouth and what goes into it, but about the heart and what comes out of it. But we also can under-realize this purpose. If it is a time of remembering and reflection, then it, some people say that it really is not all that important. That's what the covenant theologian says, the sacramentalists, those who believe that the Ordinances are a means to grace. That, well, you're just kind of reducing it to a memorial service. Well, yeah. But, but that's not a bad thing. That, that can be a very helpful thing. But we, but, but, but by saying that the Lord, when you go through the act, see, cause when I preach and you receive the word and you dwell upon the word and you 
and your understanding is increased and your love for Christ is increased, then you are being edified. But when you eat a piece of bread and drink a, a, a cup of juice, there, there, there's nothing speaking to your heart. That, that, that can't do anything unless you take that and you use it as a way for me to dwell upon Christ. So the, the whole idea of a memorial service is the whole point. We are reminding ourselves of what has happened. And you can understand that because you go back to verses uh, 15 and 16, excuse me, verse 16. You can see how a Roman Catholic, for instance, can read this and say, hey, you know what? That sounds a lot like what we talked about in the Mass. The cup of blessing that we bless, and of course, what is a priest? The priest has to bless it, say the magic words in Latin, for it to become the body of Christ, right? So the cup that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And a participation means something in which we share something in common for a common goal, right? So it sounds like you're saying, oh, wait now, when we bless that, all of a sudden we are participating in Christ. And when we bless the bread, we are now participating in Christ. That, that sounds a lot like the Mass. Well, I guess you could take it that way, but then you've got all sorts of problems you've got to uh, address when it comes to um, are you saying then that as we take the Mass, that that's when our sins are forgiven? Instead, biblically, it makes much more sense to look at that and say, look, when we when we partake of the Lord's table, we are demonstrating and reminding ourselves of how we first participated in Christ, how Christ came to us in regeneration, in, in conversion, how we came to be part of Christ, how we had our sins forgiven. It's a reminder to us of the participation of Christ and that we still participate with Christ in the local church but to say that it is the act that causes us to participate. So if I eat or drink a certain substance, all of a sudden I get Christ and I get forgiveness of sins. Now we've moved away from grace, of course, and salvation by faith into something very, very ugly. We won't take any more time to go into that at this point. And so participating in the world and certainly in being idolatrous undoes all that. It's one of the things that Paul is saying this. We take the Lord's table, we are demonstrating, we are proclaiming both to ourselves and to each other and to the world who we are. We are Christ's body. We have that in common. We are, you know, other words that are used is communion, uh, fellowship. We have this in Christ and that, and we have that with one another. We are proclaiming that. To the world. So Paul's saying, if you go and participate openly with these things, what are you saying about your participation with idols? So there's a lot here about our testimony and about how we are to be before the world. There is no magical formula that allows us to play with evil influences and pamper the flesh and not be affected. We cannot come to church on Sunday and Perhaps in Paul's day, they were participating in the Lord's table every week. 
it almost could be a euphemism for just going to church in, in some senses. And the, what they're doing is they're going to church and they're taking the Lord's table, this right, and they're saying that this now protects me so that I can go and I can do anything else I want to do and I'm okay. Exactly what the Israelites were doing. So simply eating the Lord's table doesn't make us holy, but it should be an opportunity for us to grow in our holiness. And so in verse 16, the opposite danger then of assuming that the Lord's table infuses grace into us is to under-realize its meaning. That we assume that using it as a time to reflect on the cross and Christ really isn't all that important. And I think they were doing that as well. Because then, again, they were, uh, this is what they were, we are accused of with the sacramentalists. So he explains here that, uh, to some degree, what the Lord's table is. Is he making a case for the Mass? Well, if he is, everything I just said is wrong. We'd have to say that the gospel, the gospel as we understand it, the gospel of salvation by faith, and the finished work of Christ is wrong because Christ's work isn't finished because it's an ongoing thing. So we can't overrealize it. The verse in, in chapter, uh, so I'm gonna, I've already kind of explained to you how, how the word, uh, fellowship, sometimes we, we think of fellowship as Sometimes this word is translated fellowship, but sometimes we think of that as just getting together and, and sharing things, having fun together, whatever. But the word is deeper than that. It's participation. It has the idea of things that we have in common, yes, but to be used in a, together for a goal, for a participation. We have a goal in mind. So we fellowship with one another, not just because we get along and we enjoy each other's company, we come together so that we might carry on the work of the Lord together. And so when you see that the, the term fellowship, participation, sometimes communion, it's the same word there. And so in verse 17, he says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So you see there, we are uh, many members, but because we are in Christ, there's only one bread, the Lord Jesus Christ come down from heaven. We who have eaten that bread are now one body in him. It's not saying that it happens when we do this. It's demonstrating what has already happened. Verse 18 points to what he, I think he means, and we take that with verse 22. They didn't eat the, they weren't, he's not saying here that they eat the altar, but by eating the sacrifice, they were demonstrating that they were benefiting from the sacrifice offered on the altar. You, you can't separate the fact that you're eating that meat offered to idol. Everybody else is seeing that as you participating in idolatry in, in whatever God that is, and you can't you can't deny that. You can't just say, "Well, no, it doesn't matter." You see that it says, "Consider the people of God or of Israel." In verse eighteen, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Why do I imply that? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that idol is anything? No. He's already talked about that. We, we know that there is no such thing as false gods in the sense of real entities. He's saying, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they are offering to demons and not to God. 
So I do not want you to be participants with demons. You, you cannot separate your actions from who you are. So, Paul makes it very clear they're considered by the Lord as participating in idolatry, even though there are no such things as false gods in a, in a real sense. And so he's telling us that we cannot participate in the world's idolatry and then on Sunday take the Lord's table and everything's okay. It's, he says one or the other. You're either committed to Christ, you either observe the, 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 uh, the, the ordinances of the local church and that that is a symbol of what is true in your life, or it's not, but it can't be both. In other words, it's a, an attack upon the hypocritical Christian. You're either a Christian or an idolater. The word participation isn't to be taken that we are at, the at that time receiving Christ. We aren't participating now, but that we have received Him. Baptism is our initial statement that we are in Christ, and the Lord's table is an ongoing statement. They both speak very similarly of the same thing, of who we are, what our identification is. One is a public initial statement, and another is an ongoing statement. So as we close the service, we, we are reminding ourselves of who we are, and we are proclaiming that. We are saying, I'm unashamed of who I am in Christ. But it points out that we benefit from the cross by the Holy Spirit being in us. It isn't just something that happened for us, but it also has a practical and a profound effect upon us. So we don't want to under-realize it. We don't want to say, well, I'm just going through a motion of who I am as a Christian. But no, as we ingest these elements into our bodies, we are teaching, we are preaching to ourselves, we are teaching to ourselves, we are reminding ourselves we're dwelling upon Christ. We are recommitting ourselves to Christ in a sense. Yes, our sins are forgiven. But we are also new creatures. We have new hearts. And we are never to get too far away from that. Those that eat are those that have benefited from the altar of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's death has become our death. He died with Christ on the cross. We are reminding ourselves of these things. So if we go and eat at the pagan ceremony, we are professing participation with them as well. So when Christ died, we know that something was happening. We are making a statement of this when we observe the Lord's table. It isn't that we are finally getting Jesus Christ like the Mass would state, but we are demonstrating and reminding ourselves of how we got it. The Holy Spirit united us to Christ with all his benefits. We were converted. And he still is doing that. He still is working Christ in us. And we can sit down, eat the elements, and get that no matter... We cannot... Someone cannot walk in and get all that by simply eating the elements. It's got to be something that has already happened to them. And, and to think that you can walk in and observe the right, and God gives you grace in some way, no matter how your heart is, is completely contrary to, I think, what Christianity is all about. And so communion is much like staring at the picture of your wife and family when you're on a, when you are away for a long time. 
again, it, again, think about it. You take that picture with you, and you look at it, you put it for say, maybe on the table there in the motel room, and you look at that, and you can't say, well, you're under-realizing by just looking at that to remind you of your wife and your children. That's, that's not really getting anything out of it. What, what, what else can you do to uh, a picture like that? It causes you to have feelings of love and care and desire to be with them. It's remembering their experiences that you've had with them that were totally real. And then perhaps it encourages you to be faithful to her while you're away. There's benefit there. It's a reminder. I never get too far. Even though I'm in body far away from my wife, it's a reminder of who I am with her, right? We have an experience of real fellowship and kinship with them when we see the picture. Our love is stirred, it's strengthened. We keep before us who our family is. My, uh, there's a song that we sing uh, every once in a while. My heart is stirred with uh, whenever I think of Jesus. I mean, we might not sing that that old. I know I've sung that many times. It's special. But my heart is stirred with thankfulness. No, excuse me. I think this my heart is stirred Whenever I think of Jesus, right? That's not impractical. That's not under-realizing. Because we are to always be thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hopefully it's not just an emotional stirring, but a strengthening of love and obedience. Not just a right. We don't just do this because we've got to do it. The Lord said to do it. But it takes a regenerate heart. Because the blood generally represents Christ's death, his bread, the body. His life-giving power and his human life as he lived on earth, they, they stand for his work for us. It's a spiritual experience as it is a physical one too. But to think of it as actually eating his blood and eating his body completely misses the point of how he lives within us and even how he gets in us. Christ doesn't have to sneak into us by eating food. He, he does it through the power of the Holy Spirit to kindle our spirits in awareness and appreciation of the Lord's great ministry and sacrifice for us. So, verse 19, how does this apply to his point? Well, hopefully by now it begins to, to make sense, but the problem isn't that the food at these feasts is going to hurt you, since we know that sin and, and demons aren't really anything, and that it, sin and demons can't be transferred that way anyway can't transfer sin to me when I eat something any more than you can transfer grace to me. At the end of the day, it's just food. And the gods being celebrated aren't real, even though there might be demonic forces behind it. There might not always be an actual demon behind every false god, but sometimes there clearly is. But they are always tools of Satan to keep people enslaved to sin. You are participating in in, in, in a tool of Satan. So why do you want to participate in something like that and give the impression that they're okay because if you're doing that, then you're, you're telling others, again, the weaker brother as, as well, that this is okay and that you don't have a problem with that. We're, we're encouraging people to participate in that which is dishonoring to the Lord. Now the greater application as we kind of come to a close here for us 
is that we would not participate in activities that would encourage idolatry and wickedness. Anything that would that would not encourage worshiping the one true God. He doesn't su- suggest that we are affected. Not that we can't be by doing those things. But we're living contrary to our profession. It seems to be directed, I think, in large measure to their testimony. They weren't being tainted by the food so much as they were living in a way that is contrary to Christianity, and they were doing so publicly, and, and that doesn't leave you unscathed. They were not living up to the profession. They were not running in such a way to gain the prize. Again, that's still the context. So you're living in a way that is not honoring the Lord, but is encouraging people to do that which is wrong. And again, it doesn't mean that doing this won't open us up to temptation and influences of evil forces when we do something like that. It is like they think they can participate in idol worship as long as they don't actually in their heart believe it's believe that it's real, it's okay. And this is exactly what we saw in chapter six was enough. When these men evidently were going to the temple prostitute and thinking, Well, my body's doing that, but I, I know that. False God that do this, you know. It's like they were trying to separate this thing into the spiritual and the secular. Paul says it doesn't work that way. Our bodies were given to us as temples of the Holy Spirit, he said. Both are idolatry because what we do with our body, which is the temple of the Lord, is as much an act of worship as what we do with our minds. And that's the point we made in chapter 6. I think it's a point he's making here again. He will expand on this next week. For we cannot let our bodies commit immorality as long as our hearts, in our hearts, we say we love our wife. It's hypocrisy. Because our body is only doing what our heart wants it to do. So you can't sit there and say, well, that's just my body. No, that's you. You're doing that. You're doing it because you want to. You're, you're finding pleasure in it. And that's what he's saying. You're going to these feasts and you're finding pleasure in this, this company and in participating in these things and it's idolatry. And so to sum up, we see the relationship between our faith in both the spiritual and the physical realms. We don't pick Christ or the Holy Spirit by the mouth, by the right, we don't get demons in the same way, but we yield or share in their influence by where we go and what we participate in. And we spend our time with and uh, with those who are doing those things. When we participate in the activities, not that it's wrong to be around lost people, but when you participate in some of the things that they do. And so at the Feast of Christ... We are meditating on all the benefits of the cross and hopefully increasing our faith and our love for the Lord. That's why in verse 21 he says, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. It is, it is a participation in one or the other. In the adoration of one or the other. When we do, we, we are thinking as a lost person. And when we allow our bodies to serve the Lord and serve sin, and also to serve the sin, we are being inconsistent with who we are and we're doing harm to the kingdom of God. See, we don't have a secular side and a spiritual side. 
We can't get clean at church and then live as the lost the rest of the six days. That's Catholicism, right? It is saying it really doesn't matter what I do with my body because I can always do a right, do an act, clean it, then go right back out and do the same thing. It ignores the heart. Paul is saying that the Lord's table affects us Monday, not just Sunday, but it isn't through our mouths, it's through our souls. If we worship Christ today, how can we worship idols tomorrow? How can we worship self tomorrow? It is possible that they ate the meal as I said every Sunday, so it, it, it might just be the reference to the Lord's table might be more of a reference to the the whole process of the local church of the, of the Sunday worship service. But we cannot live life with reckless abandon, which again is Paul's overall point in these three chapters, right? And what we do with our bodies is as important as what we do with our minds. And this leads us then to the summary of all this that we'll get to more really next week. So the last verse here, in verse 22, says, he ends by saying, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Then you read that and you think, oh, well, where did that come from? What, what's he saying there? And I think what he's saying is that our God is a jealous God. He uh, did not save us for us to participate in worldliness and in idolatry. Shall we provoke the Lord? Is, is it wise for us to provoke the Lord to give honor to something that is the Lord's only? And he says, well, are we stronger than the Lord? I think it's, it's a veiled reference to the fact that you're going to answer to something. You're not getting away with any of this. The Lord didn't save you for this. You better stop, take uh, 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 stock of what you're doing, how you're living. Are you running that race according to the rules? Because if you're not, there's a chance you're not going to finish the race. You're not going to earn that eternal reward or gain that eternal reward. So let us live and as a Lord with, as a way that would please the Lord. Are there any questions, comments before we?